Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Rennebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hello, I'm Todd Rennebaum, and you are listening to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health on the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. That's right, I am now on the Saskatchewan Podcast Network with many other wonderful Saskatchewan-made podcasts. So I suggest you go on the website, go on their Facebook page, and uh, or their Instagram, and check out lots of other great uh, podcasts here in Saskatchewan. Another wonderful thing to check out is Penny University Bookstore. Uh, they are on 3104 13th Avenue in Regina. Their phone number is 639-571-2186. Visit Annabelle or you can go on to uh, pennyu.ca and you can shop for books online there. Annabelle's not on online, but uh, she's in the store. So either way, get, get some books. Okay. Before I introduce our guest for our, my guest, I guess, our guest for this episode, I'd just like to give a big thank you to uh, Julian Hammond Fafard, uh, Heather Ashton, and Natalie uh, Camilla for all their wonderful shares and uh, comments and things to me over the last week. I really appreciate it. Sometimes it is really discouraging doing a podcast and, you know, maybe you're not getting as many listens as you want or you're not sure if it's worth doing it and then you hear some really wonderful things from wonderful people and it's like oh okay it is it's nice doing this anyway i have a bit of a doozy of a show here uh today uh, we are discussing intergenerational trauma in the indigenous community and uh what that looks like for uh, one specific lady in her family. Her name is Erin Goodpipe. She is uh, the host of The Other Side, which is on APTN. She's a playwright, producer, and performer of the Playmaking Treaty 4. I've seen it many times. I love it. It's amazing. I worked at Globe Theatre when we uh, when it was performed there. Uh, I worked there for well, two and a half years. It was my favorite play I ever saw. So anyway... Uh, and so she's going to talk a little bit about not just intergenerational trauma, but uh, how that looks in her family and, you know, what it takes to heal and, and all types of wonderful things. Um, this episode, I mean, usually at my episodes, I try not to go over an hour. Uh, Aaron and I talked for nearly an hour and a half, so I've decided to make this a two-part series. So this week is part one then I will do a different episode next week and then the week after that I'll do part two so you you know you you get a bit of a break you get to hear some other stuff and then you can listen to part two again in uh, two weeks time so without further ado Aaron Goodpipe these are huge topics and I know sometimes people yeah, they want it nicely packaged in, you know, like a few sentences or a paragraph or a few minutes. And, you know, that's just not the nature of 
um, these types of questions. And I think that's even a big part of destigmatizing mental health and how we take care of one another is providing the space and the resources to to listen to people and have them actually be listened to uh, to hear the full story right so that's p- part mm-hmm. of what I want to talk about today actually and I think your podcast is illustrating that point uh, really bang on uh, that we we just need to listen to people um, but yeah to get into it I think you know um, intergenerational trauma is so intertwined with my life mm-hmm. I, I consider myself um, you know I, I would introduce myself I would say how uh, Aaron Chinupa Washte Makyapi uh, so my name is Erin Goodpipe. Uh, I am Anishinaabe and Dakota. I also have some Cree in me. Uh, and I have band membership on Standing Buffalo Dakota Nation in Treaty 4 territory. Um, I find that it's really important for me as an Indigenous person to first introduce myself that way. Uh, it it's not just for the other person, but it's also for, you know, in, in a spiritual way to acknowledge who I am to, you know, the, the things that are around me. Uh, that's really important for um, myself as a person and and my spiritual worldviews. Um, and, you know, when I say that, that's a big that identity piece, that language piece and that grounding uh, is is so central to. Uh, my own healing, um, my presence here as an Indigenous person, and just that holistic health side of, um, yeah, addressing addressing myself in all the realms. So I just wanted to say that and start off in that way. Um, and and kind of from there, I'll go backwards. And, you know, I'm just going to start from the beginning. Um, there you go. Okay. Yes, I think that's a really great place to start. Um, so, you know... <laughs> You know, we're talking about like intergenerational trauma and what mm-hmm. does that really mean? Um, and, and to me, that's really, you know, t- taking the things that have happened throughout my generations, through my kinship, through my family line. And those are the memories that are attached, um, you know, going back into the generations. We have this uh, sort of saying, um, it's also scientifically proven as well, but we call it blood memory. And essentially what blood memory is, is it's talking about how our genes and our, our blood, like our biology, it actually carries memories. And, you know, when we begin to think about the things that have happened to Indigenous people and, and all peoples, but obviously I'm going to focus on um, the Indigenous aspect of everything, is that we do carry that memory uh, within our entire being. And so, you know, we're not... Um, we're not just static to this moment in time. We actually carry the stories of those who have come before us. Uh, so, you know, I, I begin to think about that, you know, when, when I feel as though, um, you know, intergenerational trauma, it is really an activating of all of those memories that I carry from my family line and and you know that goes sort of both ways because we talk about intergenerational trauma but we also need to acknowledge intergenerational resilience and intergenerational mm-hmm. strength and so when i begin to talk about these concepts i really want people to know that you know there's there are those differing sides of this right it's not just like all negative there there are positives too i mean the fact that i'm still here as an indigenous person is such a testament to that resilience and that strength and, and for all Indigenous people who are here and, you know, surviving and, and thriving uh, at the same time. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that's so important, right? Um, so, you know, for me, I was born in Vancouver. Um, I was born to two Indigenous young people um, who had actually come from the prairies. And if I follow my stories, uh, my parents' stories, uh, their parents themselves um, had been going through really intense things, coming out of residential school, um, really suffering the effects of dysfunctional family lives or community life, um, having a disconnect to family, a disconnect to community and culture, and rightfully so. Um, you know, they're coming out of residential school. Um, they've been fragmented from their community, essentially. Um, they've been forced to go, they've been segregated, and not necessarily given the education that when we think of schooling, you know, we think about being taught, you know, math, sciences, Englishes, language, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, but the reality is of residential school is that they were actually taught many labor, <laughs> labor and agriculture and farm intensive things. I mean, I hear stories in my own family line where um, many people didn't necessarily know how to read coming out of residential school. They actually knew mm-hmm. how to, you know, do chores and um, do lots of labor work. Um, so it wasn't the type of education that, uh, you know, when we think of education, we correlate it to all those sort of academic subjects. So it's not as if they were, you know, really well equipped, right, coming out of um, residential school to to go on and pursue post-secondary uh, to go on and pursue other fields. Um, they knew how to work, that's for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so so that I, that's a really <clears throat> interesting point when we think about residential school, um, is that they didn't, you know, get that education aspect uh, that we think of today. Um, and then, of <laughs> course, we want to talk about, um, you know, the abuses that went on there, mm-hmm. uh, on top of being fragmented from your community and your family, uh, not being able to practice your culture, not being able to speak your language and actually being really condemned for it, uh, those things um, begin to become internalized, right? And so you have a whole generation of Indigenous people, and I'm talking like thousands of thousands of people coming out of these schools who feel ashamed to be Indian. Um, that has profound impacts. Uh, I know I've experienced that as, as a young person in these systems education systems, healthcare systems, uh, social justice or social welfare systems. Um, but, n- but I can't, it's, it's like the tip of the iceberg compared to what my relatives went to before me uh, or went through before me in this regard. Um, but yeah, coming out and, and literally, you know, the racism that I grew up hearing in my family line was so intense. And then on top of them feeling just so ashamed of being Indian because um, it was basically beaten out of them. Um, right. It, it's almost like instead of calling them residential schools, they should be like concentration camps. That's absolutely it. No, it, it really, really is. You know, um, I, I really wish we could call it something else because, yeah, the stories that, you know, I grew up hearing are just they're horrendous. You know, like they you know, I went through a f- phase of my life where I was quite angry. And I, it's interesting mm-hmm. um, when we think about mental, emotional health for Indigenous people. But I, I, I've always noticed this and I sort of said this and there's this period of time um, for Indigenous people when we begin to learn about our histories and our families and also, you know, why these things happened. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I had the opportunity to begin to learn about 
um, colonialism, right, and the history of Canada, um, and the history of our, the, you know, the usurpation of our lands and all that goes with, you know, the colonial narrative uh, or the colonial mm-hmm. agenda that has happened to Indigenous people. And you begin to see that direct impact on your family because this didn't happen, you know, like this didn't happen hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You know, this happened to my grandparents, to my parents and all of my aunts and uncles. I can't name any of my my older relatives who did not go to residential school. So um, mm-hmm. this is something that happened, uh, you know, just kind of almost yesterday. You know, <laughs> that sounds really yeah. um, intense to say, but it, it did feel like it was like this is just happening uh, yesterday. And so anyways, I, I had the privilege of being able to grow up to an extent and learn about um, my, my history and why these things were happening to my family. Um, and, and so I noticed that I was becoming really angry. Like I was very upset about these things, you know, the reality of what was going on or the truth of what was going on here. You know, it wasn't just, oh, my mom is an alcoholic and a drug abuser and my father, um, you know, it's, it's not that, uh, you know, they are those things. And my family, you know, has had this narrative in, in my family, but, you know, there's reasons for this now. And so it was like, I was angry at, you know, the government and I was angry at Canada and I was angry at, you know, quote unquote, white people, um, non-Indigenous people. I was like, you know, how could this happen? And it's almost Mm. silly to think like that this, um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be upsetting. Right. And so there's this period of time that I believe happens for Indigenous people once we begin to know our family history and then know and become educated about why those things have happened. And this is period of time where it's like, you're grappling with that reality and, and the injustice of it all. And I think for some people, you know, that can happen this period of time for, you know, months. Um, for some people, it happens for years. And for some people, it doesn't go away, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that's really important when we're thinking about addressing intergenerational trauma is, you know, if you're going to begin to address that, those realities and those stories that are in your blood memory flowing through you and you're going to begin to think about them um, and learn about them and you're going to be engaged in you know the the indigenous reality in Canada or on Turtle Island um, we have to think about how we're going to take care of ourselves in that time because it's 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 just so intense to face those things Um, and unfortunately it's absolutely necessary I believe um, to heal and to transform that narrative. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I believe it's so important to, to recognize that space that, you know, holding injustice and holding that grief of intergenerational trauma, because, you know, as Indigenous people, um, and Elder said this before, but, you know, we don't find a lot of other people, um, you know, holding or carrying their families the same way that Indigenous people do. And what I mean by that is that we, um, you know, when I go and do something, I feel as though I have to represent myself well because I'm carrying all of, you know, my family and my people behind me. I'm representing them. Um, And that's a Um, really big burden to carry. I'm talking about um, kind of trauma being passed along in your blood and stuff. Like I'm in recovery from alcohol and drugs, mm-hmm. and um, my wife's a, a holistic body talk. She is called. She does. Mm. I, I can. Uh, I, I mean, I, I can't relate, but I can totally relate because. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I feel as though 
my alcoholism was a, a trauma that's been passed down. It's my father drank, my grandfa- grandfather drank. Um, and I have many times felt like part of my recovery is actually healing their traumas and their pa- Yeah, and, absolutely. And just like you said, you're, you're healing your, not just yourself, but you have this pressure to heal like this whole lineage that you're, you're part of and that you you are continuing with with children and everything else so mm-hmm. um i mean on a much minor scale than you know my entire oh totally um, i think that's totally race, true yeah you know. <laughs> yeah but thank Pardon you me? for saying that point because it's true and you know i preface that because an elder said that to me before um and i think a part of it is the cultural worldview that we we represent our families as indigenous people like it's so inherent in our culture Um, And also we have this, there's this sort of spiritual concept where um, we're always thinking of the seven generations before us and the seven generations Mm. after us. And so everything that we do in our earth walk is about uh, activating that sense that, you know, we have a responsibility to those who came before us and those who are coming after us. And that mm. responsibility is absolutely integral to to our character and our and our whole purpose or reason for walking uh, on on the earth. Um, so so yeah, and I totally hear that. You know, like with um, you know the 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 struggle or the journey that you have been on, and I think it's it's so interesting because I think we have to go back and examine you know why it is um, that we've you know gone into these certain paths and i think they they come from somewhere right it's always that question of Mm -hmm. where does this come from Um, right and i think you know for me it's really interesting i i said that my families they came from the prairies um my mother my mother shelly um she she's passed on now and she passed uh, away from a fentanyl overdose on, on the downtown east hastings over here in vancouver which is where i am now um mm. and you know my mom she came from you know very sort of really harsh upbringing um her parents were gone by the time she was three um through suicide and murder um and mm. then she was in and out of you know foster care um and and then lived with various family members where there was a lot of dysfunction a lot of violence um, a lot of destruction essentially a lot of substance Mm -hmm. abuse um sort of that mishmash of all of that and uh you know as a young person um one of her aunties had actually you know decided to come out to the west coast and so my my mother and her brothers joined her um, and I can't say that it was the best living, you know, because my, my, my auntie, um, who I call her, but my, it was my mom's auntie, um, you know, she was dealing with her own things, uh, long story short. And um, so my mom ended up kind of like a street kid, basically, um, sort of fending for herself and, um, you know, began to be involved in certain situations, like, you know, getting involved with drugs at a really, really young age, um, you know, getting involved with like prostitution at a really, really young age. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, and crime, I mean, all sorts of other things interlaced within that narrative at the time for her. Um, so that was sort of my mom growing up. And my dad is a sort of, it's a very similar story. Um, my father, his two parents um, from Manitoba um, in that region, and um, also they too were sort of fleeing what was going on at home, um, you know, coming mm-hmm. out of residential school and fleeing certain uh, violent, destructive family 
and community atmospheres, right? And so fleeing West, just sort of this idea of just getting away from what was going on. And so you have actually quite a number of um, prairie Indigenous people who ended up on the West Coast, I think, for similar reasons. Um, You'll Mm -hmm. find sort of a very interesting population over here. And many of them ended up um, in poverty, actually, and on the street. And, um, you know, it wasn't... uh, You know, it was very interesting because my mom growing up, um, when I did live out here on the West Coast, um, oftentimes she would sort of take off, right? And she would go, um, you know, to Hastings or to some of these places that weren't so good and, you know, use and abuse drugs and kind of be on the street. And so I would come with her sometimes. And, you know, she really, um, yeah, like it was, I always found it really interesting because I, I met so many Indigenous people who were actually from the prairies. And I was like, oh, that's, that's really neat and, and sort of interesting. You know, how did you end up here? And it was always that question, right? And how come so many of us are here? Um, so that's just a, an inquiry that I always wondered about. Um, but I think it relates a lot to to the similar story um, that you and I are talking about, um, which mm-hmm. is that intergenerational trauma and trying to flee certain situations and then ending up in the street and not having a society that supports you um and is racist and unjust uh towards your people essentially um so those things are yeah i mean it's it's all really important to know and i didn't know that as a young person i just saw that it was like you know my parents my grandparents my aunts and uncles they're all sort of really engaged in this process that's really unhealthy and dysfunctional Mm -hmm. so instead of healing they they fled from from it which then passed the trauma on further and further yeah absolutely. in a way you know what I mean oh absolutely um, yeah, okay I think that it gets reproduced right I mean it's easy yeah. it's it's very hard from what I've noticed in my own family life my personal life but also in um, the work that I do um, I've worked with youth and a number of indigenous communities and other communities and you know I, I find that if you have you know an environment that's very unhealthy um, it's mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard if even if you're the one who's like, I don't want any of this and, and you want to change and not be a part of that narrative. It's just so hard to not get embedded in it if if everything around you is that. Um, right. And so it's hard to, you know, we have certain programs that will sort of try and take you out of that situation. Um, but that's really difficult, especially when it's your family, right? Because it's your family. Um, you yeah. always want to be near your family. You want to be near what's familiar right and and I can even say when I was you know young um I definitely wanted to be near my family no matter how destructive they were it was like I would still choose my family over um you know being segregated isolated and alone I would still choose the dysfunction because I love them that much so I think that speaks to you know how we reproduce um you know just sort of dysfunctional cycles just by way of us wanting to be near to What's familiar? Right. I when I, I worked at Pine Lodge for a few years before the fire and whatever else was happening there right now, but um, there was a, a young lady who uh, came from a local reserve, and she spent the whole month, and she did really, really well. She came out of her shell, mm-hmm. and she was doing wonderful. She found out she was pregnant while she was in treatment. She was glowing. She was lovely. Yeah. And uh, the last day when she was leaving, she looked like a truck hitter. And I, I, mm. I said, what, what's, what's going on? You look really sad. Yeah. 
And she basically said what you said. She's like, well, I'm going back to my family. I'm going back to my reserve. I'm going back to my husband. And I'm, I'm basically just going right back into the, you know, the hornet's nest of yeah. mm-hmm. abuse. Uh, her her husband abuses her, but, you know, that's her choice. Like you said, you'd, you she still chose her family yeah. and chose, you know, what she knows because that's who she loves. And that's, and so uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't heard hide nor hair of her since, but my heart just completely broke because I saw her heal or, you know, not fully heal, but I saw her healing. And then I just saw her like go back. Yeah. Like basically from the, it was like the first day she came in again and it was like, oh my God. Right. And it's so heartbreaking. And, you know, I think it speaks to the dilemma that we're in um, as, as, as human beings actually, because it's like, we can't just fragment ourselves, um, you know, apart from, our social situations, you know, and, and, and the, the crappy part about healing um, or, or wanting something that's different than, you know, where you come, you came from is that you can't change people. Um, they mm-hmm. have to want that for themselves. I mean, you can, you can support and love. Um, but it, one of the hardest realities for me to learn in addressing my own intergenerational trauma was that I, I, I couldn't change my mom. I couldn't change my father. You know, I couldn't change my cousins. Um, and I fought for a long time to, to be a part of that and to support and to love them. But I realized that it was like, no, you know, they have to make that choice. They have to want that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I grapple with that all the time. It's still an ongoing thing that I need to learn. And I have to have boundaries with it too, right? Um, right, yeah. And, you know, I, I actually was one of the people who I, I made the choice to actually leave my family by the time I was 14 and 15. Um, I actually left and I actually had grown up where I was, I was in foster care when I was younger. Um, and my mom was really struggling, you know, as a younger person being a mom and with her own, you know, addictions and everything else that was going on. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and actually we would try to evade social services. So we would move back and forth between the West coast and Regina, um, and then Mm -hmm. other places in Saskatchewan sometimes. So I was like moving around quite often um, and it became sort of this, we, we sort of felt like fugitives. Like I felt like a fugitive, like that we were always in secret or hiding or running away from. Um, those are some of my earliest memories as like a two, three, four year old. Um, and you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, I think I have like this part of my own trauma is also dealing with the trauma of seeing society as, uh, yeah, like an enemy, you know, cause I feel like right. it's like they were always against us or always looking for something that was wrong. Um, and not supporting my mom in a holistic way for her healing, um, you know, because what should have happened, I think, was, you know, you keep you keep mother and, and child together. You know, I'd never agree with breaking up families unless there's some really severe uh, circumstances that are going on. But I think right. we need to begin to think of healing as, you know, the family unit needs to be healed. The collective unit needs to be healed. Um, otherwise, there's always going to be this dilemma, right, where individuals need to make the choice to break from their family. And that's that's really tough. That's a really yeah. tough human dilemma to be in. Um, can, I, can I give you a stat? Yes, please. Indigenous kids represent less than 8% of kids under 14 years of age in Canada and make up 52% of the kids in child care systems. Exactly. Yes. I, and I know that uh-huh. stat. I know that stat. And the same is true if you were to look up uh, incarceration 
uh, yeah, for Indigenous right. people. Um, if you were to look up the poverty, if you were to look up poverty stats, if you were to like look up in the healthcare, like health determinants, you would see that Indigenous people make, uh, you know, a small percentage of uh, the population. Yet we are overrepresented in in the in the negative stats uh, yeah. in in almost every sector of society. Um, and yeah. so you begin to put those dots together and you're like, hold on, this isn't right. What's going on here? You know, because this, this doesn't look right. Um, yeah. and, and so there, that is a part of that, you know, the educational part where we're like, okay, hold on, you know, there's more that's going on here. And, and as indigenous people, um, I think we have a little bit of leverage because we have some of those family, uh, stories, right. Um, and if you're mm-hmm. lucky, you come from a family who is sort of, they know about these things, right. Um, and I can't say that's true for every Indigenous family, but um, I was lucky at one point. So I moved away from home by the time I was 14, 15. I actually made the choice to run away. Um, and that was really difficult because I just so badly wanted my mom to to get better, you know. And, and there was a very violent situation that she was in with her partner. And I was like the second mom to my siblings. And, you know, that was a really tough decision for me because I knew if I left, you know, they might be more vulnerable because I was mm. oftentimes providing or protecting them, right? You still are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a big part mm. of my life. Um, but so when I was 14 and 15, I, I just, you know, it was probably one of the hardest decisions I ever made, Todd, um, which was to leave, you know, to, to run away and leave and say, you know, I'm going to try and forge my own path, no matter mm. how hard that is. Um, but I knew that I couldn't live in that situation anymore um, with my mom, with her partner and with the situation that was going on there with my mother's addictions and her, her trauma. It was, I'm, I'm, I'm a very absorbing person. Mm-hmm. And as a young person, I began to see, you know, this is going to make me feel depressed. Um, I'm taking this on and I, I feel like it's, it's almost like you're um, you can't save a drowning person, you know, and then also try and mm-hmm. swim yourself, right? It's like, we're both probably going to drown. <laughs> um, right. And that's what it felt like. So I actually, um, I returned home. And by home, I mean my reserve. Um, because I knew that there was a sense of community there. And I knew that there was a sense of identity there. And there is a sense of, um, yeah, you know, a sense of my culture there. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had been exposed to culture. And that was, you know, ceremony and tradition and um, that's where I felt seen as an Indigenous person. And I knew that that would sort of be my way out. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's been a big part of my, uh, I guess, my own healing. Um, the reclamation of uh, who I am as an Indigenous person has everything to do with my healing and getting out of those situations. And so I went back to my reserve and um, I was very fortunate to be adopted into traditional circles there and um, have the privilege of, you know, being exposed to land-based stuff and culture and ceremony and began to build up this, this identity of purpose and being connected to greater things. And it totally overshadowed, um, you know, the so-called circumstances of where I came from, you know. And I mm-hmm. began to have this lens of, you know, seeing my, my parents as you know human beings and having that sympathy for them you know um and and, and I've, i still wrestle with that sometimes you know i'm in a very good place now where I, I understand where they were as human beings and where they are as human beings 
mm-hmm. but I still, you know, obviously I think you wrestle with, well, you're still supposed to be my mother and my father, right? Like, um, yeah. you know, that's always sort of there, but you, you learn to work with that. And, and I relate healing to grief a lot. Um, and grief to me is not something that you can just do and then it's gone. It's uh, sort of, it's ongoing. Uh, it's something that you learn to, to work with and to live with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important in healing trauma. Yeah. Um, everything you're saying sounds very familiar. I've, I've heard it from many past clients in Pine Lodge. I mean, I've I, we've had like gang members who grew up fully, you know, in a core area of the city shooting at police, you know, and they the, they healed by well getting sober but they healed by uh, uh, you know like embracing their traditions and their culture and mm-hmm. talking to elders and all that and and being part of ceremony and and uh yeah i've heard that so many times i mean i mean that is the healing right i mean that was the wound was taking that culture away yes. and i think yeah the way to heal is to take it back absolutely i yeah. i mean that's it's fascinating because i've worked in research uh where we're addressing health and well-being of indigenous youth and culture for whatever reason is so powerful in combating uh, all of the adversity that these youth are facing or that indigenous people are facing and, and for whatever reason culture has got that powerfulness to it and you know my mom my own mom actually she asked me um, before she passed away, she said, you know, me and your dad are fuck-ups. So how mm. did you make it out? You know, even my own mom was like, you know, how? how? Like, how are you doing this? And um, my mother asked me, she asked me the first time when I was like a teenager, you know, like I wasn't um, super old at this point. And I honestly, I didn't have an answer for her. I said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, I thought it was like, I don't know. I was like, for whatever reason, this is just what it is, you know. Um, and and as a young person, I just so greatly wanted more, you know. I I, I knew when I was young that I just I I did not want to be um, caught up in drugs and alcohol because I had seen so much of you know the destruction, the chaos, and the turmoil, the hurt, and and you know the list goes on. And I just I I didn't want that um, for mm-hmm. for my children and and you know for my line. And I knew that it had to stop with me. Um, and I would do whatever it, it was going to take to do that. And even, you know, there's some huge sacrifices that were made, you know, um, and implications of that. But sometimes I still regret, you know, like I have a sister and, uh, you know, she's really struggling in her own addictions. And sometimes mm. I wonder if I didn't <clears throat> leave or run away, um, you know, if she she might have had a different path, you know, if I was there for her. Um, mm. and, and so those are things, you know, that there are impacts there, right? Um, but I just knew, like I said, when I, when I was young, that I just wanted something more than that. Um, I just knew it so deeply in my heart. Um, but you know, so when my mom asked that, I, that's what I could just boil it down to. And now as a, you know, as I've you know grown and matured and learned, I've learned a lot. Uh, it, there are, I have answers to that question, you know, and, and a big part of that is having a sense of identity having a sense right. of who I am as a person, you know, and knowing that, you know, I'm, I don't have to carry the shame of my mother and my father as Indigenous people, that I can be proud of who I am, that I come from a culture 
that's connected to the land and that we activate the spiritual understanding of everything you know we're a part of something that's really big and really important and really special and that spiritual worldview informs every aspect of my walk here of every aspect of my health and well-being um, and that's you know that collectiveness being a part of you know being an individual that's connected to something greater than you um, that's a huge part of our identity and and that's what saw me through um, you know so much and 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 also that identity comes from community like having healthy community who's going to mm-hmm. love and support you and we have this thing in our culture um, it's 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 an adoption is what i could narrow it down to and what happens is through ceremony we adopt one another um, you know i have aunts and uncles now i have brothers and sisters um, I have cousins, I have grandmothers and grandfathers who aren't, you know, we're not related by blood, but we're bela- we're related by um, our stories. We're related by our kinship ties. Um, you know, those are the things that connect us and I don't see them as any different. And so even though I was without, you know, my, my parents at times, um, I was without healthy family in the blood sense. I actually gained so much family in another sense. And so it is really that that sense of culture and community that that paved the way for me to be you know where i'm at today anyways <laughs> a better sense right. of healing a better sense of transforming that line <laughs> um but i owe so much to that um yeah so i, I if my mom was alive today i i would tell her that yeah. um how long ago did she pass my mother passed away in uh december of 2016 mm. yeah so it's been about five years how, how good is it that that feeling that you no longer have resentment towards your parents but instead empathy Mm -hmm. what is that like is that your question yeah it's like how good does that feel like i Ah, going through treatment and healing (laughs) myself it's like things like that that i used to have resentment for and now that i have empathy for it's like such a lighter feeling and it is it's you know it absolutely is it's uh it's freeing the word freeing comes yeah you know Mm -hmm. and um I still grapple with it, you know. I, I there's times mm-hmm. where it's like you can see the hole, right? Where like that you could fall in, but you have this sight now to see it. And uh, you know, I, I have my younger siblings who are aren't necessarily in that place, you know. Like they're still really upset mm-hmm. with their parents, and you know, I, I still have that in me too. And it would be stupid of me to think that that's not there because, of course, of course, I want my parents to have been, you know, parents. I feel like it's sort of like my right almost, you know, as a human being, because it's like, you know, I didn't ask to be here, but I am here and I am grateful for my life. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I just so much wish in my heart that, of course, I wanted healthy parents and of course I wanted family. That's one of my biggest wishes still, you know, and I can't pretend like that wish isn't there. Um, But I see my my family, my parents as human beings. You know, um, I see them with a sense of compassion and I see and have analyzed and and reflected on, you know, what they have gone through. And as I myself go through life, you know, I begin to have more insight about, you know, the hardship of life itself, you know, on top of, uh, you know, the adversities that my parents went through. Um, So, you know, that that's been a really humbling experience for me to to feel that sense of like freedom and and, and understanding in that freedom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Um, oh, God damn it. I hate when I do this. I don't want to write. 
<laughs> Every episode, I I do this. I I had a point and I didn't write it down. And now I'm like, I do that too. I honestly need to have like a <laughs> pen or a pencil. Like <laughs> I'm just like sometimes you got to write down a word, right? And you're like, oh, right. <laughs> exactly. Reel me in here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aaron. Um, it's just, it's wonderful talking to someone about this stuff, and it's just nice talking to you. You're just a great lady and, and nice to talk to, so thank you so much for that. Um, part two, like I said, will be not next week, but the week after. And I have to apologize. When I was editing, I felt like I, felt like I was making some really, I, I sounded like an idiot in this episode for some reason. Uh, maybe I don't, but maybe I'm just paranoid or, uh, self-conscious, but, um, some of the points I made and stuff was like, what am I talking about? Like, why am I, I'm rambling and I'm not making much sense anyway. So if, if, if you think I sounded like an idiot, um, I, I agree. Next week, I'm talking to Sandy McDonald and she's the co-founder and executive director of IAPMD. That is the International Association for Premenstrual Disorders. So you're thinking, what, what what's a premenstrual disorder got to do with mental health? Well, you'll you'll find out. It, it actually is a mental health disorder, and it involves women only. And there's a lot of misdiagnosed women that have been diagnosed with bipolar, who actually have PMDD, and it involves their cycles. And you're going to learn a lot um, next week. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, I know women who had no idea about this thing, and it's it, they say it's one in twenty women that have this, and it, possibly up to one in ten women. So uh, stay tuned and listen to that episode because I think you're going to learn a lot. Um, and yeah, and then the week after that again is a part two of Aaron Goodpipe and mine conversation. So there you go. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe, rate, and review however you are listening to this podcast. It only takes a moment, and it really helps the show out with getting noticed. This episode has been sponsored by Penny University Bookstore, 3104 13th Avenue. Call 639-571-2186 and check out their online bookstore at pennyu.ca. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported by Conexus. Wellness, however you define it, is achievable. You don't even need to figure it all out by yourself. Talk to Conexus. They'll give you guidance, motivation, and the push you need to reach your goals. They've got you. They're your financial partner and they know you can achieve your very best. Your financial best. Prove them right. Start right at Conexus Credit Union. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is also sponsored by Direct West. Are you a business owner looking for new avenues to promote your business? Direct West digital billboards are a great opportunity to highlight a new product, new promotion, or anything else you'd like your customers to know about. You can get local, expert marketing help for your business at directwest.com. If you are having a mental health crisis, please call the Canadian Crisis Number at 1-833-456-4566. In Saskatchewan, the mobile crisis team in Prince Albert is 306 Seven six four one zero one one. In Regina, it's 306-525-5333. And in Saskatoon, it's 306-933-6200. Don't forget to check out my children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries, 
Sometimes Daddy Cries is told through the eyes of a boy whose father suffers from depression. He sees his dad get sad, rest, and even go to the hospital, all while comparing his father's depression to a physical ailment. Available on Amazon.ca. I'll see you next time. This is Todd Redebaum saying, make your beds and take your meds. Bye.